This is the Teacher Wellbeing Podcast, brought to you by Self-Care for Teachers, helping you prioritize your health, happiness, and well-being so that you can thrive in the classroom and in life. I'm your host, Ellen Ronalds Keane, reminding you that you're a person first and a teacher second, and you are allowed to look after you. Workload. Despite the jokes that teaching is nine to three with 12 weeks holiday a year, we know it to be otherwise. We know that the work starts well before 9am, finishes well after 3pm, and that large parts of those holidays are usually spent working too. We also know that workload has been increasing over the last 10 to 20 years. The introduction of new improvement measures such as professional standards for teachers and the national curriculum, as well as the impact of NAPLAN and the My School website have resulted in more administrative work, much of which arguably has little to do with the actual running of a classroom day to day. Today, I want to talk about the impact of that, but I also want to talk about the invisible work that goes on for teachers and not just the actual work that we know to be work, but some other aspects of our job, of our expectations on teachers, and of the changes that have happened in society that impact schools over the last 10 and 20 years that really create extra physical, emotional, and mental work for teachers as well. So in the last 10 years, we've also seen a shift in the conversation about work in society. The concepts of mental load and emotional labor have begun to be discussed and reported on, most regularly in regard to the work done by social justice advocates, helping professions, and women in the managing of their homes and households. So some quick definitions for those of you who are unaware of these terms. The mental load is a term that first came on my radar in 2017 when a cartoon called You Should Have Asked by French cartoonist went a little bit viral. You might have seen it. It is a brilliant cartoon. I will link to it in the show notes. It's about the unequal division of household management and especially about the invisible ways that this plays out in women's heads that often men don't even see or are even aware of. So it was a really powerful cartoon to read because for me, it was something that I'd been kind of vaguely aware of, but until that point, I wasn't able to put language around it. So because I didn't have any language, not only could I not really see it clearly or acknowledge it, I also couldn't talk about it or do anything about it. This cartoonist, whose name is Emma, didn't come up with the term, but I do think that her viral cartoon brought the concept of the mental load suddenly into the lexicon of many people around the world. For a more proper definition, here's one that I got from an ABC article, which I will also link to in the comments. So that article by uh, Leah Rapana states, the mental load is all of the mental work, the organizing, list making and planning that you do to manage your life and that of those dependent upon you. Most of us carry some form of mental load about our work, household responsibilities, financial obligations and our personal life. But what makes up that burden and how it's distributed within households is not always equal. So that's the the kind of definition. So the mental load is all that mental work, the organizing, list making, planning that needs to happen to manage your life and that of those dependent upon you. So I really recommend the cartoon and the article in the ABC by Leah Rapana. Like I said, I'll link to them in the show notes and in the description of this episode. So you should be able to click away in your podcatcher and find that as well. Now, the context of both of these pieces is about household management. 
the shopping list, the cooking, the cleaning, the laundry, the children's schedules, the semi-regular appointments like dentists and pest controls and car maintenance and all the bills that need to be paid. I strongly believe this is a really important topic that both men and women need to be aware of and discussing and doing something about so that, as mentioned, it becomes uh, starts to be distributed more equally. But the household part of this mental load topic isn't the focus of today's episode. However, I do also, just while we're on the topic, want to recommend Annabelle Crabb's excellent book, The Wife Drought, for more on how this plays out in Australian homes and how it impacts men and women in the workplace as well. Really great book, very well researched, and of course, quite funny because it's Annabelle Crabb and she's a great writer. And To the fellas listening, if this pricks up your ego a bit or if you feel yourself getting defensive just from that little definition and the hint that it it may not always be equal and there may be a gendered element to this, just sit with that feeling. I really do invite you to pay attention to it and to listen to it. Don't give in to the temptation to write this off or to start justifying. Just sit with that feeling. Maybe in your household it is equal. Maybe it doesn't apply in your case. Maybe it does. But either way, sit with that feeling, offer yourself a lot of self-compassion and just start observing things in your life and the lives of the people around you, maybe with a little bit of a new lens going forward. So I know that it can be uncomfortable. It really can. That's why the self-compassion piece comes in. But I invite you to sit with it rather than to reject it and just to stay open men and women, everybody listening, stay open to the parts of this conversation that maybe prick things up within you that make you feel defensive or make you feel argumentative or make you feel like you need to justify. Just pay attention to that. Notice that you don't have to do anything with those feelings. You can just notice them and observe them. The fact is that this mental load conversation is entirely gendered. It is a gendered thing in our society. And I won't shy away from that, although I will admit that I feel particularly inarticulate and inadequate here in that I'm not an expert on this topic in any way. And I always feel like I need to do even more research and cite all my sources to the nth degree uh, and maybe even go and get a master's on the topic before I'm allowed to speak on this. But I also know that that's actually just another way that I've been conditioned by society and by our results-driven educational system and by the patriarchy to not speak up, to not question, to not answer a question unless I'm 150% sure that I've got the right answer because if I'm wrong, I'll be crucified for it. Uh, And most of all, don't be disruptive. As a former teacher's pet, that last one is strangely the most scary to me. I don't want to get in trouble because getting in trouble is just the worst thing that my inner child can imagine. So I'm acknowledging that. I'm acknowledging that I feel like I don't know enough to be able to even speak on this. And I'm naming it here so that you know that if you feel like that too, that you're not alone. And I'm speaking anyway, imperfectly and with some sources, but also just in my own words and from my own experience and observation. Trust that you can take what works here and leave the rest. Anyway, I want to focus not so much on the mental load of the household today, but on the mental load of the work of a teacher. The gendered nature of this whole topic is actually interesting to me as well, because as we know, teaching is a predominantly female workforce. Traditionally, it was one of only a few professional roles even open to women. You became a nurse or a teacher or a secretary, and once you got married, you stopped work. Obviously, we've come a long way since those days, thank goodness, but we cannot deny the impact that that has had on the way education is viewed in and valued by society and the way that the conditioning of women has impacted cultures in schools to this day. 
Broad generalization here, I know, but as a general rule, women have been conditioned to be self-sacrificing, to be agreeable, to keep the peace, and to carry all the mental load and do all the emotional labor to hold communities together. Quite possibly, as I've been explaining this, you've already joined the dots in your mind to see that there is a huge mental load involved with teaching as well as with managing the household. So remember that the definition is that the mental load is all the mental work, the organizing, the list making, planning, all of that that you do in order to manage your life and those dependent on you. Organizing, list making, planning, managing tasks, tick, 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 right? That all happens in teaching. And the last line about it being about managing your own life and also those dependent on you, yes, that also applies to teaching too. There are little humans in our classrooms every day that rely on us having done all that organizing and list making and planning and task management to make sure that the classroom runs smoothly each and every day. Teachers have an ongoing calendar in their minds, constantly calculating what needs to get done by when. How long will that assessment take and when is it due? What needs stocking up? What resources are needed for that practical experiment that's happening in 17 days' time? How many days in advance does the office need the photocopying request in in order for me to get the copies of the exam paper back so that we can do the exam? You get the point, right? I don't think I need to explain this to you because you're living it. But you may not have until this point had language for it, for all of that mental work going on in your brain every day. You may not have been aware it was even happening, much like you're probably not aware of the sensation of your feet in your shoes or your bum on the seat that you're sitting on until you suddenly now are aware of it because I have drawn your attention to it. So now you notice it. The thing about the mental load is that it's invisible. And not only is it invisible to everybody else, because when things run smoothly, nobody notices all that stuff that was required in advance for it to go smoothly in the first place. And also because it's happening inside your head, so no one else can see that but it's also often largely invisible to you. Now, if you're following me on social media, you may have heard me talk about the invisible and the visible work of teaching a little bit this year because it's been on my mind a lot. I've found it to be a really useful way of explaining to non-teachers and to journalists reporting on the topic of teacher stress and the like that part of the issue I believe that we're currently dealing with, the devaluing of teaching as a profession in our society I believe part of that is because everybody's been to school and they think that what they saw in the classroom is what teachers do. The visible work of teachers is that contact time in the classroom with the students or at various school events. So parents and community members and even certain politicians, (coughs) Andrew Laming, (coughs) can easily believe that teachers really only work nine to three and have 12 weeks holiday a year because that's all they see. That's the visible work, right? That's the time that we are actually in front of other people and our job is being witnessed. And of course, if seeing is believing, then it's only the visible work that gets believed. But anybody that has ever lived with a teacher knows that there is a truckload of other work that does not happen in school hours or in front of an audience or even on school property. It happens in staff rooms and classrooms after all the students have left for the day or before they arrive. It happens at dining room tables, after dinner, and on the weekends, and sometimes on school holidays, it happens in cafes and in hotel rooms where the teacher is updating data and creating resources and writing criteria sheets while the rest of the family enjoys the vacation. That is the invisible work of teaching, all that administrative stuff that isn't witnessed by the broader community, including the people who make decisions about education policy. So it's easy for them to ignore, dismiss, forget, or deny that invisible work altogether. Out of sight, out of mind, quite literally. 
So that's one type of invisible work, and it's an important one to acknowledge and to begin to voice so that it can become more visible and, more importantly, believed. It's like the wind. We don't necessarily see it, but we see its impact and we know that it exists. And I have a vision for the future where the invisible administrative work of the teacher is treated that way by society, not necessarily witnessed, but the impacts are evident and therefore the work is valued and respected and time is given to allow it to be done. Obviously, I also have a vision where the workload is actually reasonable and able to be completed in 40 hours a week, but that is a podcast for a different day. (laughs) Anyway, the other type of invisible work of teaching is this mental load that we've discussed. And it's even more insidious because it's invisible to us too. Until we have language around it, we can't even really notice that we're doing it, let alone discuss it or do anything about it. But sitting alongside the mental load is also the emotional labor. They can get conflated, but I want to make it clear they are not the same thing. A recent BBC article, which I will also link to in the show notes, explains that emotional labor means many things to many people, but put simply, It's when somebody feels the need to suppress their own emotions. The term was first used in 1983 when American sociologist Ali Hochschild wrote about it in her book called The Managed Heart. At the time, Ali described emotional labor as having to induce or suppress feeling in order to sustain the outward countenance that produces the proper state of mind in others. So to say that again, to induce or suppress feeling in order to sustain the outward countenance that produces the proper state of mind in others, i.e. suppress what you're feeling so you can keep the peace. This absolutely applies in the non-work setting, you know, at home, but let's keep this related to work. It also can definitely be a gendered thing, but even more than that, you will likely encounter more emotional labor if you are a person of a minority. So for example, if you're a person of color, Uh, an LGBTQ person, a person with a disability. In these cases, not only does emotional labor mean that you are suppressing your feelings in order to sustain the outward countenance that produces the proper state of mind in others, so in order to keep the peace and pretending you're not bothered when someone makes an offensive joke, but there's also this added emotional burden of being expected to be the one that explains and teaches to others why that was an inappropriate or offensive thing to say in the first place. So, That kind of adds a whole nother layer to it, that minority piece, that intersectional feminist lens. It it just adds a whole nother layer to it. And we're not really going to dive into that today either. So this concept of emotional labor, of suppressing whatever you're feeling or feeling like you have to put on a happy face to keep the peace, I mean, it's not exclusive to teaching. And like I said, it is not only something that women do. People in all workforces face this to some extent. Like in the retail or hospitality industry, you know, the worker has to smile and be polite to the rude customer. And also people like cabbies, security guards, emergency services officers, they have to diffuse potentially dangerous situations with potentially dangerous people. So they need to be, you know, calm and collected and negotiate and and all of that. But we're teachers, so let's look at it in the context of our workforce, our workplace, which is obviously schools. I'm sure that we can think of examples where we have had all had to smile and carry on in order to keep the peace at work. Certainly in the classroom, it happens all the time. <laughs> the energy required to be on all day and to hold space for 25 or 30 little humans is immense in and of itself. In one of the teacher stories this season, uh, I don't think it's out yet when this one will go to air, but it's coming up, a teacher named Elise mentions this. She acknowledges how much work it is to damp down on our natural responses when spending time with children who are 
you know, sometimes displaying behaviors that are actually really annoying or really difficult to be around. Behavior management in general is pretty much emotional labor, right? It is Behavior management is a game of who can stay calm the longest. Uh, and it takes energy to stay calm and to continue to be responding instead of reacting and to follow through and do all the things that we know are best practice in regards to behavior management. So in the classroom, there's a huge amount of emotional labor required. And then when we think about interacting with parents and community members, of course, there's emotional labor required there too. As the attitude in society has shifted towards teachers being customer service representatives and parents being the customers and that expectation of needing to keep the parents happy is becoming more explicit, this has only increased. So that aspect of that hospitality worker needing to respond with a customer is always right attitude, that has kind of crept into our work as teachers where it never was before, you know, in the old days and the good old days. And of course, we know that now abuse and assault from parents is actually a thing And so the emotional labor of the security guard who has to tamp down on their natural fight or flight response, stay calm and stay in a potentially unsafe environment in order to defuse a potentially dangerous situation with potentially dangerous people is now also a part of our work. It's horrifying that it is, but it actually is where we are now as a profession. So there's a huge amount of emotional labor required in dealing with parents and community members as well. And in the staff room, one could argue that emotional labor is even more required because the people that we work with day in, day out are not always our favorite people and sometimes can even be toxic. Add to that the fact that we're all stressed and exhausted and that just increases the pressure there. So dealing with staff room politics and the staff culture at work can be just as draining as the rest of the job, truly. And it is something that teachers tell me bothers them just as much as the behavior in the classroom and the workload expected by the department. So if we add all this up, we've got a huge amount of invisible work going on as teachers. The invisible work that we are aware of, that administrative sort of data gathering paperwork stuff that happens at kitchen tables after hours, but you know happens not to be witnessed by an audience, so it's invisible to society, that's the first part. And then you add to that the invisible mental load of just all the planning and organizing and constant calculating going on in our minds to keep classrooms running smoothly day to day. That's the second piece. And then we add to that all the invisible emotional labor that goes into working with 25 to 30 little people, all of their parents and guardians, and all the other staff at the school. No wonder you're tired, right? So if it's clear that the workload, both the invisible and the invisible workload, and the physical, mental, and emotional work that is required to do this job, if it's clear that all of that is actually unreasonable, you know, for one person to get done in 40 hours a week, then what can we do about it? Well, in the short term, there's not much that any of us individually can do about the expectations imposed by the various school sectors in which we work and the way that society as a whole has changed. So now we're dealing with more behavioral challenges from the students and behavioral and sometimes, you know, oppositional and abusive parents as well. In the long run, though, I do think there is a lot we can do about those things, but this isn't an episode about that. I want this to be practical. I want it to be useful to you where you are right now. It's not going to solve all your problems. As I said, I don't think there's a lot that individually any of us can do to solve all of that right now. But let's park the systemic workload issues for now 
and the issues in, you know, the changes in society and the fact that we can't change anyone else that we work with either. And let's just look at what you individually can do to survive and look after yourself in this system, in this society, in these situations. So number one is simply to name it. Being aware of the fact that much of the work required of you is invisible to others and invisible to yourself is so important. In the same way that being aware of the mental load in the household is the first step to changing things there, being aware of the mental load and the emotional labor and the invisible work of teaching is the first step for us too. So now that you have become aware of this through listening to this episode, you will be better able to name it when you notice it happening to you. Having a name for things that are invisible is incredibly powerful. As Dumbledore teaches us, the fear of a name increases the fear of the thing itself. And even more than that, I believe if something doesn't even have a name, it's hard to acknowledge or be aware that it even exists. The invisible work is so important. The mental load and the emotional labor are such valuable contributions to our homes and our schools and our communities. But in order to be valued, they need to be acknowledged. And in order to be acknowledged, they need to be named. And even more than that, the problematic nature of much of this invisible, out of sight, out of mind, you know, the administrative work that the education system is currently requiring of us, the problematic nature of that work can only be changed if it is first acknowledged. So name it, people. Let's name this stuff. Let's be aware of it. Let's notice it. Let's name it. Let's discuss it. Talk to your teaching buddies about this. Make this a common conversation in the staff room so that the invisible work, the mental load, the emotional labor stops being invisible to us at least, at least within our own sector, within our own staff rooms. If we can name it and acknowledge it, then at least it's visible to us. And if you feel like it, maybe ask your admin team to listen to this episode of the podcast too, so that as a collective in your school, you can make the invisible, if not visible, at least understood. So step one is to be aware of it, notice it, name it, and talk about it. Step number two, and this might be a little bit confusing, but hear me out. Step number two is to accept it. Now, before you yell at me through your podcast app, I don't mean to accept that things are unreasonable, that the workload is unfair, that the society has gone down the toilet and we give up all hope of changing it. That's not the kind of acceptance that I mean. (laughs) I mean, accept that it is the current reality. Accept that this is where we are at. Sit with how unfair it is and just observe it. It is what it is. Use that mindfulness technique of non-judgmental observation. Often, when something is unfair or unreasonable, We don't actually sit with it and accept it. We rail against it in our minds. We deny it because it's so unfair and it couldn't possibly be true. We fantasize about how much we wish it would be this other way. And we spend a lot of time daydreaming about the imaginary arguments that we will win, (laughs) the last word that we will get, and fixating on the what ifs and the how comes. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, me too, right? I've been there too. It's okay. Let's not make ourselves wrong for doing that. We are human. But let's acknowledge that it doesn't move us forward. That kind of thinking keeps us stuck and it actually perpetuates the status quo because it stops us from actually taking action. So let's work to accept the reality of how things are. Really acknowledge it and observe how it's playing out. Only then can we look at doing anything about it. Remember, we're going to use the mindfulness approach of non-judgment. When we observe, we're not going to make it mean anything more. 
We are just going to notice it. We're not indulging in those fantasies in our heads. We're just observing, accepting the reality, acknowledging that it is hard and giving ourselves lots of self-compassion throughout the process as well. So step number two is to accept it. Step number three is to do a little bit of a double check on what actually is required of you. Now, maybe don't do that the week this goes to air because I think it will be report card week and you've got enough to do, right? But at some stage, individually or maybe uh, as a group at school, you can do a little bit of digging into what your school sector or department mandates need to be done and what your school leaders are saying has to be done. Not always, but sometimes there is a disconnect there. By the way, this is not to beat up on school leaders because they are under huge amounts of pressure as well and in a health and wellbeing crisis as well and subject to as much as, if not more, bullying, assault and abuse from parents in the community as the rest of us. So it's not about that. However, it is important to make sure that when it comes to that administrative data gathering paperwork stuff, the stuff that isn't directly related to the actual planning and preparing and assessing and marking and reporting on your students, the day-to-day classroom stuff, right? Just check how much of that other stuff is actually mandatory. That word mandatory is key. If it's not mandatory, then I'm not here to tell you to be disobedient and oppositional to your school leaders that may have asked you to do something, but I am here to gently suggest that you or your staff as a group could open up a conversation about the actual must-do mandatory tasks and the other extra stuff that maybe doesn't have to be done or maybe it doesn't have to be done on this particular timeline, right? If we're going to make any changes, this is the first place to start with a conversation in your school about what is actually mandatory. And if you're going to have that conversation, if it's safe to have that conversation, then let's talk about, okay, over here is what's mandatory. I highly recommend you also have a conversation about what is manageable and kind of reasonable to get done. So the caveat to this, of course, is that this step is not actually mandatory. I know all too well that some of you are in school situations where asking questions like that or opening up conversations like that is simply not allowed, not psychologically safe, and maybe would even put your job security in jeopardy. So this step is a nice to have, not a must do. First and foremost, we want you safe and secure financially, physically, mentally, and emotionally. That is what self-care is about. So let's look at some more steps for self-care in the realm of the mental load and the emotional labor and the invisible work. Remember, this step is not mandatory. It's just if you feel like you can do a double check of what's actually required of you, whether all that administrative work you're being asked to do is actually mandatory or whether it can be a conversation with your school. So step four is to actually count and account for all the invisible work that you do. Now, the best way that I think you can do this is to track your work and track your hours. Are you tracking yet? I'm sure that this is something that I've mentioned on the podcast before and definitely on social media, but seriously, tracking your work hours is such a powerful step in getting your work-life balance, if not totally balanced, a little bit more in that direction. And by tracking your work hours, I mean all of them, the visible and the invisible, the contact and the non-contact, the tangible work, the you know stuff that actually produces data and physical paperwork and all that, and the mental load and the emotional labor too. So tracking is a way to make this invisible stuff more visible. It's a way to really quantify your fatigue for a start. 
Why am I so tired? Oh, yeah, because I actually worked 60 hours this week, even though I was only at school for 34 of those, right? Sound familiar? So the easiest way to track your hours is to just make a table with four columns. Column one is the day and the date. Column two is the time you started work or left for work. Column three is the time you finished work or got home from work. And column four is the total hours you worked that day. Now, every day you write down what time you started work, or if you have a lengthy commute, I recommend writing down what time you actually leave the house so you can count your commute time as work because you wouldn't be doing that drive if it wasn't for work. And it is an invisible and often unacknowledged part, not so much of the work, but of why you're so tired at the end of the day, right? Anyway, so write down what time you start work, then go about your day, then write down what time you finish work or got home from work. And if you end up doing a full day of work, you know, you get home at five o'clock and then you pick up work again after dinner and at 7.30, you sit down at the dinner table and you start working and you keep going until 10 p.m., then you would make two entries for that day. The first one, all day until 5 p.m. And then the second one, 7.30 p.m. start, 10 p.m. finish. Then at the end of every day, you add up how many hours in total you worked and you put that in the fourth column. Now, I actually usually just do the start and finish times and I leave the adding up till the end of the week or sometimes even the end of the month. The important thing is to do the start and finish times every day so that you don't forget those. And if you're busy, you can leave the adding up and the analyzing of that data till later. And also sometimes if you're feeling super stressed and overwhelmed and you're just not feeling particularly emotionally robust at the time, sometimes adding it up uh, makes you feel worse. So it can be enough to just do the start and finish times, leave the adding up until even on the holidays, if you might feel like you've got a bit more headspace and, you know, heart space to deal with that. So if you want a template for this, I've got one in the freebies library on the resource room. So go to www.selfcareforteachers.com.au forward slash library. It's actually not an idea that I can take credit for entirely. It's actually a technique I got from the excellent book, Your Money or Your Life by Vicky Robin and Joe Dominguez. Um, And in their book, it's more of an activity to help you work out personal finances and and budgets and stuff by figuring out your real hourly rate, taking into account things like commute time and work barbecues and stuff. But for teachers, I think it's really helpful to work out your personal energy budgets, even more than the financial one. It helps you actually account for all that work that you are doing that is draining your mental, emotional, and physical energy, even though you don't necessarily see any visible result of all that invisible work. If you want to take it one step further, then you can actually use a great little app called Toggle. That's uh, T-O-G-G-L. And uh, you can set yourself up a free account, get the app on your phone and set up different projects. And you can then actually track whether you the work you're doing is, you know, planning or is it preparation, resource creation, classroom teaching, meetings, emails and filing, assessment, marking, reporting, school events. You know, you can track it by classes, year 10 history, year 9 English, year 11 communications or whatever. So you could take it as far as you want in terms of categorizing the types of activities you're doing and tracking throughout the day. But obviously that's an extra level of work. So the simple way, like I said, is just to track how many hours you're working so that you can have a bit of data for yourself on how much you're working and why you're so tired. And also over time, if you do this and check in with the results semi-regularly, even if it's just once a month or on the holidays, it can help you plan ahead because you get to know, okay, last report card season or last time there was a school concert or week two every term two for whatever reason, it's a really busy week. You know, I worked this many hours on top of the usual number of hours in that week because of those extra requirements. 
Um, and I remember it was also really hard because I agreed to do that social event or that community thing or help out that family member in the middle of that week. And actually, I just didn't have the time, which I can clearly see now when I look at the numbers. But at the time, I felt guilty saying no, because I felt like, well, you know, I've got stuff to do, but it's going to be at home. So, you know, I technically am flexible enough that I can get to that thing on the weekend or whatever. But actually, when I look at the numbers, I just didn't have the time. And so when I look forward to next term or next time this event comes around again in the school calendar, I will make sure to block out that time and not add anything extra, not say yes to anything else on my plate, because I can clearly and more accurately estimate how much time I'll actually need to dedicate to the work there. So step four is actually to account for that invisible work through some kind of tracking. Make that invisible stuff a little bit more visible and actually count your mental and emotional work as work because it is. So a quick recap of those steps again. Number one, name it. Become aware of the invisible work and the mental load and the emotional labor and actually name it. And then start discussing it with those around you so we can normalize this and have more understanding of it as colleagues and school staff and start to make it more visible. Step number two is to accept it. Acknowledge and accept the reality of that it is what it is, right? And and that you can't actually move forward without acknowledging that and accepting that. Don't get fixated on wishing things were different. Accept that this is real. It is what it is. And then just observe how it plays out for you. Remember, use the mindfulness approach of non-judgment when observing, just noticing, not making it mean anything, and give yourself heaps of self-compassion throughout the process too, because that's really important. Step number three is to double check how much of that extra administrative type of invisible work is actually mandatory for you in your role. Open up a conversation about this at your school with your line managers or your leaders, but remember only do this if it feels safe for you to do so. This is not a mandatory step. It's an ideal step, but it's not mandatory. And it's only if you feel like it's actually possible to have that conversation. And step number four is to count your invisible work as actual work. Account for it by tracking your work hours. So you can get the tracking sheet from the freebies library, or you can use the toggle app, or you can find some other way to track your hours, but do it so that you have some data for yourself. And so you can better manage your energy budgets throughout the term and make better decisions and plan more effectively going forwards. So remember, there will be links to all the things mentioned in this episode in the show notes. So that mental load cartoon, Annabelle Crabb's book, The Wife Drought, the Your Money or Your Life book, the Toggle app, and of course, the Work Hours tracking sheet is in the Freebies Library, along with a whole bunch of other great resources, which you can find at www.selfcareforteachers.com.au forward slash library. And it's free, by the way. So get into it. This was a big episode, friends. I know it might have brought up a lot for you. Please practice some self-compassion if you're feeling overwhelmed or fed up or just very emotional right now because of the content of this conversation. Sit with it. Observe the feelings. Be very, very kind to you. And remember that you're not alone. You don't have to suffer in silence. Talk to a trusted person about this. Talk to your teaching buddies the psychologically safe people at work, right? And we are each other's allies in this. So let's support each other through it. And if you need to, reach out to get some mental health support as well. There are different options for different states and different school sectors. And the lovely Trudy from teacherthriving.com has compiled a list 
of all of those different options and the, and the different employee assistant programs. So I'll put the link to that in the show notes too. And I really encourage you to use those services if you need them. That is what they are there for. You are not alone. We are all in this together. So let's support each other and let's work together to make the invisible work more visible, more acknowledged and more valued over time. It's not going to be a quick fix. It's not going to be an overnight solution. But together, working on our own stuff individually and working as a collective, I do believe we can get there. And of course, remember that you're a person first and a teacher second, and you are so, so, so worthy of your own care. See you later. Thanks for listening to the Teacher Wellbeing Podcast brought to you by Self-Care for Teachers. If you've enjoyed it, go ahead and subscribe in your chosen podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, hit the three dots, share it to your Facebook or Instagram stories, and let your friends know that you're listening. And if something in this episode made you think about a teacher that you care about and you think they need to hear it, send it to them now. Let's spread the message of teacher wellbeing and together we can create thriving school communities. Show notes for the podcast can be found at www.selfcareforteachers.com.au forward slash podcast. And you can find me on Facebook and Instagram using the handle at selfcareforteachers. Season five of the Teacher Wellbeing Podcast is proudly supported by Katrina Burke Coaching, Teachers Thriving, Zoe from My Smart Community, Jessica from Lead and Inspire, and Katie from See Me, Know Me, Teach Me. As always, remember you're a person first and a teacher second, and you are worthy of your own care.